0: This is is, is, is. Refining and Reforming Soli Deo Gloria
1: Tell me who's that right, John the Revelator Who's that right, John the Revelator Who's that right, John the Revelator Wrote the book of the seven seas All right, thanks for tuning in today, guys. You're listening to the Refining and Reforming Podcast. My name's Aaron. I'm going to be your host on this episode. Nick's going to be joining me, but in a little bit of a different way today. So the other day we sat down tried to bust out a podcast. We ended up going two plus hours, which is not shocking given how much uh, we both like to talk and ramble on sometimes. So it was a little too long. So we ended up splitting up the podcast because of the length and also the fact that it was Covering two different topics and so we thought it'd be a little bit more helpful to separate the topics, cut down the time, make it easier to listen to and also hopefully focus in uh, each episode on the specific topic that way you guys can be able to uh, interact with it and listen to it and hopefully engage with it. So on this episode we are going to be discussing family ministry within the church and Uh, thinking through a biblical and theological um, family ministry, going through different models that have been proposed, the problems that we're seeing today, and hopefully a solution uh, that we can begin implementing and talking and discussing about. So that's going to be on this one. So uh, tune into uh, this uh, latter half of a conversation me and Nick had about a week ago. Here is... Episode 43 on Family Ministry. Here you go. Anyway, time to put that into a very, very hard, uh, very hard turn and do a 180 and now go on to our different topic. I think we literally beat that one to death, but in a good way. Is there beating something to death in a good way? Is that even possible? Okay. If it's supposed to die. Ooh, I like that. This is why we podcast together, everybody. (laughs) So jumping into our next topic that has nothing to do with this topic. Um, I, me and Nick have been wanting to discuss this because this is something we've had to think through practically. Uh, we're both um, out of college now, both in seminary courses. Uh, we're both trying to be um, active in, in our local churches and serve in our churches and hopefully for um, Lord willing the desire to one day pastor a church. And so when you get into those things, I, th- I think one thing we typically forget in both of us being uh, young men is we typically forget to think of some of the more practical things of ministry, uh, especially when you're having to read all these books for seminary, you're reading about these big doctrines, you know the the doctrine of the uh, in a, the inspiration and infallibility of scripture, or you're reading the you know the theology. Um, you're th- reading theology proper and trying to come to a good um, orthodox understanding of the nature of God, or you're trying to get a solid understanding of the Trinity. These things, you, we don't want to get lost. Now, these things are extremely, extremely important and foundational, but we don't ever want to uh, just sit in uh, the, the land of abstraction and never get to talking about um, things that are more practical in pastoral ministry. And so, one of the things we've had to discuss um, of what that would maybe look like in the future, or what you know, what position you would land on, is the the topic of family ministry, and specifically what we could call you call it family ministry. You can call it family discipleship. Um, you call you. I mean, you can call it a bunch of different things, um, but it gets down to who has the primary role in the raising up of uh, the, the children within the church. And, uh, I just recently finished up a class on this, which kind of prompted me to want to talk about this, is, um, who primarily fulfills that role? What are the main ways we see that done today within our evangelical culture? Um, and then maybe we can talk about critiquing some of those things, Maybe the position we land on, why we land on it, and then maybe we could go back and forth on some things that I'm still wrestling through that I don't actually have fully answered under that position. But I think at the end of the day, we'll still land on the... We'll see what happens. I think we'll still land on the same the same ground. We've talked about this before, but I think there are a couple things that I still don't have fully nailed down yet, but I do know where I land more and where I'm not landing. So... Um, If we were to talk about family ministry and family discipleship, typically people think of family ministry in the same way they think of collegiate ministry, or they think of high school ministry, or they think of young Mary's ministry, or they think of the ministry for ministries, or they think of the chapel choir, um, uh, serving lunch, taking out the trash ministry, or whatever ministry (laughs) name you have at your church— when people generally think of family ministry, they think of it along the same lines as another group or um, another thing started at the church that the that the church does in light of all of its other programs. And and, and thinking about through what family ministry is, um, we can see that throughout, especially the last century, the, the 20th century, and then leading on into our modern day and time is that. Um, not only has the church, but just American and Western culture in um, general has become extremely age segregated um, with public school systems, with the way children are now raised these days, with the, um, the the society we live in, we tend to separate more and more and more by age. So you see a huge rise in, in the adolescence, in what we can call quote-unquote teenage years, and um, And within these teenage years or adolescent years, we keep seeing this age of youth continually being stretched out and stretched out further than what it ever was meant to be to where now the idea of being young and being youthful and doing what you want is the norm. And so now adolescence is seen as this um, long, uh, profound period of time that you decide for yourself. And it usually centers around feeding one's own ego or self-satisfaction to the point where you can see these things uh, dropping off in our culture itself. Um, The rate of people getting married today is significantly dropping off. The rate of people having kids is significantly dropping off compared to past generations. Um, And then the view that people have of marriage, divorce rates, um, kids growing up in single households because there was there was no marriage to begin with, and there was uh, children who were uh, who came um, out of wedlock, and so you see all these different problems that we have in society, and they're all symptoms of a couple foundational things, and that's people getting away from the family, of people getting away from biblical morals and ethics, of people getting away from families raising up their children and children growing up with different people of different ages and different backgrounds. Instead, we have this segregation of kids hang out with their friends. They learn everything from their friends. They're influenced by their friends. Their friends are almost like their heroes in their life. And so you have all these different ways in which kids have been ripped from the family, have been ripped from the church, and have been thrown into a secular co- culture that despises those things and who also separates them and then creates these subcultures out of it. So I kind of tried to wrap up a lot of um, people who've done research on history of how we've gotten to where we are gotten. And now it's affected the church to where if you go to any main church, what are you going to find in the church, Nick? You're going to find age-segregated ministries with probably a, and if they're big churches, you're going to have a nursery you're going to have a um you know one for walkers that can just begin to walk you're going to have those for preschool you're going to have one going into um all of the elementary grades and then one for middle school and then you graduate onto high school and then you graduate onto college and then after college if you're still around you graduate into the young singles and if you finally get married you go into the young marrieds and if you last long enough you go into the older marrieds and if you last out long man they just give you a badge that says i've been here 40 years <laughs> and you get recognized as a deacon or something So you go through this long process of continually going through these age-segregated ministries, and that is typically where you'll find most churches today. And so we want to address um, those um, issues and actually where it's led us today when it comes to family ministry. And we would say this first and foremost, that age-segregated ministry has come, not completely, but has severely disconnected families from raising up their own children in the admonition and training and fear of the Lord so that parents are no longer the primary disciple makers in their household. Um, Parents have now passively given off their kids to the church and churches have dropped their job of training up those in their church instead have tried to entertain those who come into the church for the sake of pragmatic numbers and for appeal to um, the culture, and so that's summing up. I think some of the main problems that we're seeing in churches today, and some of those reasons, and that's because we have we have gone away from uh, equipping and training up uh, families to raise up and and train their kids in ministry, and that we have we have now um, abdicated all of that responsibility to the church. And the only way the church has responded is in general, evangelicalism has responded in how do we keep the kids? And that's the wrong question, obviously. And so we can talk about some of the pitfalls that we see in age segregated ministry, maybe experiences that we've had, and then maybe get into some of the different models of family ministry and then why we've landed to the one that we've now landed at.
0: Yeah, I mean, what you said earlier uh, is something that I think the the Puritans dealt with when Sunday school uh, was actually being brought into the church, and that is um, that when something like this starts to happen, when you start segregating uh, children, um, one of the one of the chief issues that especially the Puritans had with it was um, if we continue with this model and apply this model to the church, parents will stop catechizing their kids. Parents will stop taking the uh, authority that the Scripture has given them and stop teaching their children uh, and, and doing their duty in in, uh, in teaching their children and raising them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And, uh, I mean, obviously with the, the class you just took um, – You're going to have a lot more information on this than I will uh, because I've just done a little bit of research by myself to try and uh, understand how we should do ministry within the church. But um, especially when you look at even uh, Sunday school, which uh, predates uh, age segregated ministry by a long shot, uh, that was never even intended for the purpose that it has now. Uh, the Sunday school movement was uh, basically to actually educate children uh, that were on the streets on Sundays uh, in London from the factory so when the 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 kids who weren't able to go to school who were working in the factories uh, pre-labor laws the uh, a man named Robert rakes wanted to actually educate the children actually teach them so it was actually Sunday school it was it was actually. Like school, teaching them to read and write and math and things like that, Uh, and as it morphed into something for the church, it more and more uh, took on this role of becoming uh, like a discipling arm of the church, which it which was never intended to do in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it actually started to morph into something uh, that was never beneficial to the church, uh, was never intended for the church to do and was never mandated in Scripture. And so, like I said before, and, and something you brought up is, as it continued to do that, it uh, it took the responsibility off the parents to catechize and teach their children. And, um, and what it did is it, it basically told the parents, you're not qualified to teach and, and raise your children, so the church should do it. Uh, and and obviously that's a big problem, and that was something that the early Puritans had a problem with that uh, that they tried to fight against it. So,
1: yeah. Now, when we think of Sunday school, Sunday school has no context like that now. In general, Sunday school is you send your child off somewhere so they're entertained until they hit a certain age, and then you start taking your faith a little bit more seriously the older you get. Right. Um, and I can so first thing we could talk about is just like basic experience. Now, when we talk about experience, obviously, experience doesn't mean that every single church is like this, nor am I creating a generalization that covers every single big church out there, small church out there, whatever size church, whatever affiliate or denomination. But I think the problem we have in general, uh, we've seen in age segregated ministries. So I've had the experience before um, of being in a church and actually um, being in several different churches especially uh around college age years is being uh, trying to find college age ministries or or trying to find something along the lines of fitting in with someone in my peer group or someone who was my age and when you get involved in those ministries you get to see kind of that segregation firsthand and obviously in in the time and day when that happened i never really viewed it like that and then looking back on it now my you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. 20 um, but looking back on it now, I can see just how segregated I actually was from the body of believers and how segregated I actually was for anyone that was over the age of, you know, 26, 27 years old. And so when you think about it, I've had the experience of being around peers my age who won either... Um, don't have more life experience than me, or if they do, it's, well, they graduated college and I'm in my second year of college. Man, you have two years of experience on me. Um, And that's not to say that uh, peers cannot teach one another and that peers cannot learn from one another, but what it says is that you can separate uh, ages from being... Um, integrated together and you lose um, not only the family in that, but you you lose what we would call intergenerational upbringing where the young men learn from the older men who should typically be wiser, who should know more about the scriptures, who have been involved and have been um, active in their local church for years and who would be good godly influences. And so what you typically end up having is the blind leading the blind um you have you know the girl who's second year in college is leading the bible study group and she's spouting off heresy while all the young <laughs> men are you know could care less about doctrine and could care more about you know the the activity they're going to go do after or, or the fact that they're all going to go hang out and maybe they can find some christian girls you know after they're done hanging out and so you you typically tend to have an immaturity amongst um, that age group, or just any age group in general, and so experiencing that, um, not only do you see the immaturity within those people within the same age group, but you see the fact that there is no church. And notice how I use that the the singular church. There are groups of people that go to the church, but there tends up in there ends or there tends <laughs> to be no actual unity. There tends to almost actually almost functionally be no single church that comes together on Sunday to worship together because you have your kids who go and worship here while you're in what I mean, quotes air quotes right now, main worship. And then you have um, the older people who go to a more old fashioned service and the younger crowd goes to the contemporary service. And so you have all this splitting up of not only ages, but interests at your own church to the point to where you almost think you don't have a unified church on a Sunday morning. And typically uh, this also comes about, and th- now we're just getting to like little things of, as far as um, people don't learn the same things you're on different um, curriculums and programs, and you're not actually under the actual teaching of any pastors or elders who are qualified to teach. You're generally under people of your age with the same caliber and level of learning that you have, which in most evangelical circles is really scary, um, because they wouldn't know the difference between um, an Arminian and Ar- an Armenian, And <laughs> so you have, um, some pretty, uh, you have some pretty shallow level teaching that usually uh, breeds off the, these kind of systems, and it just breeds out a generation who, one, doesn't know God and knows very little about the very God they claim to know. So... I mean, in just my experience, I've seen the problems with uh, typically having age-segregated ministries, um, not only biblically but also pragmatically, uh, is it it leaves the parents primarily passive in the raising of their kids spiritually and primarily up to the church. And when a church used tends to get big, it leaves it primarily up to people within the same age category as them, and that's never a good thing. When Jimmy in junior year of high school is leading all the uh, you know freshmen and sophomores under him and trying to tell him how much you know the the God from the book The Shack loves them and wants (laughs) to give them a big old hug, and so it's. Do do
0: do you remember when, uh, in speaking about just personal experience, I I did not realize how seriously I was into the segregated thing until I went to the church that I now go to. And I remember running into these people that are like 35, 40. I mean, these aren't even like old people. And I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? <laughs> like, I didn't even know how to interact with these people mm-hmm. because I had never been around them. Yeah. I was When I was in high school, I was around high schoolers. When I was in college, I was around college kids. I never was interacting with older people who are within the body. It never happened. Mm -hmm. And besides the fact that, uh, so uh, in talking about uh, age segregation in church, there's two big reasons why I don't like it. The first one is super clear that there's literally zero scriptural support, literally none there is nowhere in the Bible where you will see that there's age segregation for ministry. There's it's nothing. So, and then the other thing is exactly what you were talking about is that you get put into this group of your peers and that's pretty much all you learn from. And so the problem is you have these weird, goofy, immature people and then you all you group all of those weird, goofy, immature people together, and then it just becomes this big room of goofy, immature people. There's never any, um, I don't want to say never, because I mean, sometimes there there is in rare cases, but in the majority, there's not this growth or maturity and sanctification and all these things that happen when you interact with older people and you're being discipled and mentored and, and you're learning and growing. But instead, it's just this group of all peers, and they're all goofy and weird and immature, and that just builds, and that that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. But I think, uh, and I, I mean, I don't. Maybe we can address this as well. But I think one of the arguments is always brought up is, well, what about people that don't have a family, or what mm-hmm. about people whose parents aren't doing that job? Mm-hmm. And um, that that's a good question. But to address it, we have to ask a couple questions. And one of them is, okay, so if a kid is at home in a dysfunctional family, is it better or worse to take that kid who's in a dysfunctional family and place him into a group of all dysfunctional children of the same age? I mean, is that is that really better for him? Uh, and then you also have to ask the question of, at what at what point do we look at commands in scripture and and say okay well this person isn't doing their job so we're just going to delegate that job to somebody else instead of calling that person to repentance instead of looking at the family who's not discipling their children mm-hmm. and calling that person to repentance telling that father, you are a derelict father. You are neglecting your family, neglecting your children. You're not teaching them the word of God and calling them to repentance, calling them out if necessary in front of the church. And instead you say, well, he's not doing his job. So we're going to just have somebody else do it. We don't do that with anything else. We don't do that with any uh, other sin in scripture. If, If you find a man who's not loving his wife correctly, you don't delegate another person in the church to go love his wife correctly. You call him out in his sin. Mm-hmm. That's the way we do things. So when you find people like that, you call them out in sin. That's exactly what the Puritans did. Uh, it, I mean, one of the things that I love reading the most about the, the behavior of some of these guys is if, if they found out that you weren't catechizing your children, you were brought before the church. And if you continue to not catechize your children, you were excommunicated from the church. Yep. I mean, it was it was taken so seriously that you you had the responsibility to raise your children. If you weren't doing it, uh, they followed through Matthew eighteen,
1: and you were you were basically thought of as an unbeliever because you were you
0: were not taking care of your family. Yeah,
1: and when you go to the pastoral epistles, one thing we typically forget um, in the qualification for elders. We typically think you need to be a PhD from you know Southern Seminary in order to be qualified as a pastor, when the opposite is actually um, true, is you need to be qualified as a husband and a, and a father, first and foremost. Um, if you go to the pastoral epistles and you read Timothy and you read Titus and you read the qualifications for elders and deacons, combined with the doctrine always comes with the fact that you manage your household well, that you love your wife and your kids, and that... Um, Um, your, your your kids are known for the fact that they are not a wild and disordered and that you have and teach your family and that you have order within your own household. And so technically, somebody could be a brilliant PhD level scholar, can teach the Bible better than anyone on the planet. If he does not lead his family well and does not lead his wife well and his kids well in discipleship, he is not qualified to be an elder in the Church of Christ. And so... We typically look over that, like you said, like it's just a little itty-bitty problem, and yet we've seen throughout church history that up until recently, if that's a failure on your part, you, one, are disqualified as an elder, and two, if you continue and persist in that sin and are unrepentant, you are actually excommunicated from the corporate life of the church. Right. And I think that's the difference, is it's actually viewed in
0: the majority of church history as a sin. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find... Uh, a large percentage of um, most of your, you know, regular evangelical, uh, you know, big churches or whatever that would call that a sin.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 so I think something. I think what you said sums that up really well as far as problems that we have with that. And I think we could give both biblical and I think in one sense that's a biblical. Um, reason that bleeds over into the practical daily outworking of ministry, which obviously always begins theological and and always supported by the foundation of theology. Um, And and I think another side note is, if you've ever been in age-segregated ministry like we have before, then you know that, like, think back to when you were 19, I was 19, um, if your, if your age-segregated ministry was disbanded, how involved in church would you have you actually been in? You know what I mean? How involved in church would you actually have been in? Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking back to myself, man, I may have left the church because I associated so deeply and so ingrained to me that that ministry I was a part of, while God still used it in my life, um, almost became an idol in the sense that it almost became church for me. Yeah. To the point where I associated people at church with the people in a group instead of viewing the whole church as the body of which I was like you said completely disconnected with. And when I say completely, I literally mean completely disconnected <laughs> with. And the same thing that happened to you, we uh me and my wife moved about 4 months after uh we had all transitioned into a Uh, a more family-integrated church. They're not fully family-integrated, but they are a lot closer to family-integrated. And I remember coming up here and having the same experience you did. We are now literally surrounded by most people who are older than us, surprisingly. Um, Most people are older than us are right around our age, but we're actually um, some of the younger people in our church. And we have so many kids at our church And having to deal with people in their 30s, in their 40s, who have um, young kids or babies or teenagers, relating to them was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my entire life because you meet them, you shake hands, you smile, you're like, oh, that's great, you moved here. And then you're like, now what do we talk about? (laughs) Now how do I relate with these people? And yet these are people you worship with every single Sunday, and -hmm. yet you can't carry on a two-minute conversation with them because... We have been so isolated from one another that we don't even know how to function around one another if you don't like the same things I like. And so it's a huge challenge, but um, I think you could aim in this is the growth that we've both probably seen within our own personal lives, within our own marriage, and hopefully with our family in the future is that the way we relate to people is completely different. You know, we have people we can call true, not only brothers and sisters in Christ, obviously, but friends in our life who are are older than us or who are way older than us, you know, who we could be their, you know, their sons or their daughters. And those people we go to for prayer and those people we ask for advice on things we haven't gone through and they give us biblical, um, they give us biblical answers and biblical encouragement and exhort us to do this or warn us of this. And so, You miss that, and like like we say, we can't paint our experience as the the end all be all of the problem. But I think our experience paints a good picture of what you know thousands, maybe millions of evangelicals experience, and yet don't understand is not biblical. So I wanted to read this paragraph that I sent you actually, Um, and this comes from a book. Uh, where they actually sum up some of the recent problems we've had in the 20th century with age-segregated ministry. And this is coming from somebody who doesn't even argue for a certain model. They're just kind of providing statistics. So um, this comes uh, first and foremost from a a perspectives book, but he pulls a quote from Smith and Denton in a book called Soul Searching, and it's a statistic that he gives. So in reading this from their perspectives on family ministry, uh, quote, one of the primary cracks in our iceberg has a name, moral therapeutic deism. In 2005, sociologist Christian Smith coined this phrase to describe the core religious values held by overwhelming but held by the overwhelming majority of American teenagers, not only those outside the church but also those raised in the church. Summing up 4 years of research for the National Study of Youth and Religion, Smith's analysis of moral therapeutic deism provided a definition for something that has been a growing concern among persons working with children and youth. And then here's the quote, despite strong interest in religion and even active participation in vibrant churches, millions of students in our ministries were unable to articulate even the most basic tenets of Christian faith. Young People are emerging from our children's ministries and youth programs with the belief that religion is all about doing better and becoming happier. For the most part, they perceive God as a distant and benign creator whose purpose is largely to help us feel better about ourselves. Despite all the investments and supposed advances in age organized ministries over the past 30 years, church children and youth are growing up less likely than ever before to have a biblical perspective on life, end quote. And anything that we could possibly say is summed up right there with the problems with age-segregated ministry. We have a rising, not even just churches, we have a whole entire generation who now subscribe to a moral, therapeutic deism that is antithetical to the gospel, antithetical to biblical command, and is completely at odds with true orthodox, Reformed Christian faith. And that's the problem. And so I think that's why we need to talk about this, and we need to talk about it in a way that just doesn't try to um, change up a program here or there, doesn't just try to bring in the next, you know, cool, hip youth pastor with skinny jeans and glasses and his hair slicked back, or bringing in a rock band, or Whatever you want to bring in, uh, you know, a uh, shooting midgets out of a cannon like Chris Roseboro, it doesn't matter what it is, <laughs> but we need to have a complete paradigm shift in how we even define and think of family ministry within the church. So um, I think that's a great quote. Man, It that hit me when I read that. I was like, boom, mic drop, get out of here. He literally just summed up the problem with age segregated ministry. And um, what's actually funny about the book is he drops that quote and you're thinking, wow. So they have statistical proof. They've, you know, done these surveys. And that's also to um, throw in there, there are a bunch of different surveys out there. None of them have the same statistics. And so you obviously are going to get different statistics based on the way you poll, the way you ask questions, how you actually, uh, you know, get your numbers and statistics. But regardless, if you look at all of them combined, regardless of the exact number of teenagers that it accumulates for it, the one thing is clear. We have a generation of, of American teenagers and youth who are growing up who are deists, who are functionally and theologically deists, and think life is about God making their lives better. And if we heard that on a Sunday morning, we would be standing up, screaming heresy, and we would be leaving that church. And then, yeah, we, not- and then we would be back the next Sunday handing out tracts telling people why they shouldn't go into that church.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree, man. I think that quote actually is like, it's so funny when you sent me that because I'm sitting there like, dude, this is like the exact experience I had. And I know it's the same thing you had too. I mean, we both talked about it on a previous podcast of like we, we... we were put in charge of a specific ministry or Bible study
1: of which we we were not qualified for.
0: (laughs) You what? (laughs) Of
1: which we were not qualified for.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And and we both went in and the first thing we wanted to do was ask some basic questions of like, all right, let's get some basics, see what we understand. And we both asked basic questions and neither of us were able to get even the most basic questions answered. Mm -hmm. Like, the most simple things, not even understanding what the gospel is. And I mean, I I remember like exactly what you're talking about, that the gospel got turned away from the fact that that sinners can be made righteous, uh, you know, by the blood of Christ and escape the wrath that is to come. It got turned away from that to we can live a happy life in Jesus and escape the world's troubles. Mm hmm. I mean, that, that was the gospel to these people. And, uh, I mean, I don't know if the book you read uh, had the statistics in it, um, but I, I, some of the research I said or, or some of the research I looked at had anywhere from 60 all the way up to 88% of kids that were leaving the church. I mean, I don't care what way you spin it. 60 to 88, that's a big gap. Even sixty, I mean the the, I mean kids are leaving the church in droves. I mean they're just gone. I mean this generation does not care about God or the Bible. It has no authority to them. Uh, They have a spiritual like idea to them that there's I well I like God. You know I just but I don't I don't really know if I believe any of that. Mm -hmm. I mean and there there's no and of course. from the first half of the program, obviously, we're, we're Calvinists. We believe in God's sovereignty. We believe that, uh, you know, by God's grace, he will keep you in the church. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, that doesn't take away from the fact that it's clear that it's this isn't working, mm-hmm. that the model isn't working. Mm-hmm. And you said it earlier that it's we don't need to get, we don't need to revamp. It's not that, okay, maybe the pastor isn't cool enough.
1: Maybe yeah. the music isn't cool enough. <laughs>
0: maybe we've tried down this
1: road, maybe and it's not working. Enough.
0: Right, we've we've gone down this road, and it's not working. It hasn't worked, mm-hmm. and so I think the the distinction between what we are saying, and because you will find everybody says this. Mm-hmm. Kids are leaving. No matter who you ask, whether they're, they're they have a programmatic view of church or they have a family integrated church they're going to say the same things. Kids are leaving the church and they're going to ask the question of why. Yeah, They're going to answer, we're not relevant enough. Yep. We're going to answer, you need to abolish that ministry. They're mm-hmm. leaving because they were never part of the church in the first place. Mm-hmm. So we are not saying revamp children's or
1: age segregated ministry. We're saying get, get rid, rid of it, it. altogether. <laughs> drop it like it's hot. Yeah, uh, seriously. <laughs> drop it like it's it's hot because it's on fire from the building burning down uh yeah and so it's funny so if you so there there are guys who have done actual research on so there's a lot of different polls out there in a lot of different supposed statistics so some of these statistics are actually based off of personal experience by different youth ministers youth pastors youth workers whether it's Um, actual local church pastors or its parachurch organizations. And so that's why you have these numbers jumping around. I mean, you could literally have numbers jumping around between that have a difference of 50 to 60 percent as to, quote, how many kids are leaving the church. Um, But but like I said, forget the number. Say we go low, say we go 25 percent of kids. That's a lot of children leaving the church But here would be my retort. How many that are staying in the church who could say they're active church members don't have that deistic worldview that we just talked about, who don't have that therapeutic, deistic, moralistic worldview? So So what if they stay in the church? The point is not about retention. It's not simply, do I get the kid to come back every single week until he dies, you know, or I got him in college and now he's been in the youth. Uh, and now he's been a part of the young, the young singles. And now he's young Marys and man, he's been in every stage here at church. Look, he stayed in the church and you know, we're faithful. And it's like, well, you haven't been faithful to the preaching of the word of God. And he knows absolutely zip in the 20 years he's been a part of the church about anything about God. And so even if you want to make the argument, which I think is a valid argument, that's that these statistics don't paint the best argument. And they don't, because you can't make a clear case on a certain statistic. The point is, forget the actual number. If it's 80%, if it's 20%, if it's 50%, it doesn't matter. The point is, you have a large percentage of the generation who are leaving the church, and a large majority of those who actually stay in, quote-unquote, church, are actually unchurched. Why? Because they know nothing about God. The God they believe in is just like you said— Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus because he would—he'd uh, make my life better. Maybe my job would get better, or maybe my wife, you know, would treat me a little bit better. I treat my life, my wife, a little bit better, and that's just—that's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. And so, sorry, I mean, that it gets frustrating to hear it because, uh, in reading through the different arguments, you'll read guys who um, argue more for a programmatic approach to family ministry. And they like to talk about how, although, well, those statistics are so blown out of proportion and you can't really trust where the, the backing for those statistics are come from. And you're like, well, that's in some sense that's true because no one polled, you know, 100,000 youth in the church and got all these answers. But you're getting the opinions of people who have worked in churches for 10, 20, 30 years in youth ministry and are saying... Yep, it's it's a uh, it's a giant failure. Can you guys stop? And they're like, "Oh no, see see the statistics are skewed." And they're like, "No, no, 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 no. It's failed. I promise you it's not working." And they're like, "See the numbers, they're skewed. We can continue. The problem is not youth, you know, age segregated ministry." And so, you're having these guys who are admitting, "Look, in the last 30, 40 years within our modern day, we've had more time more money and more youth pastors hired within that time. And yet we're seeing the largest exodus of our generation and the generation after us leaving the church. Yeah. So, um, that's good, man. I I think it'll be good, um,
0: to get the conversation started. Like, I think, I think this is going to be the perfect way to, if people have questions, um, I'd like people to like email in, you know, do something to where, uh, you know, ask us questions, get the conversation going. Um, you know, we don't have all the answers, but I think this is a good, I mean, cause this is important, Yeah. especially for people who are in ministry, uh, wanting to go into pastoral ministry in the future. I mean, you're going to have to have to, you know, uh, iron out the wrinkles, so to speak on these things. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a good way to to get the conversation going.
1: Yeah. And I think just to just to jump into the the last little bit so we can um finish this one up. So in light of those statistics and the problems that we've addressed and pretty much the problem with this this coming generation is that we have the most unchristian generation coming um up at least in western culture. And we have a generation that, if they are in church, are largely, know, uh, are largely uh, moralistic, therapeutic deists and know very little about the tenets of the Christian faith, which obviously has led to many people writing literature on family ministry and discipleship programs or ministry programs. And so you kind of have these three camps. And Now, they don't obviously encompass every single church and every single ministry or even parachurch organization, which that's a whole different thing. Um, but you typically have uh, three main ones that you're probably going to see, and then you also have your outliers that are, I mean, I guess you could call them extremes, but they might go towards one end more than the other end. And so within these, what I would call the main evangelical stream, you're going to have what they call a um, family-based ministry, a family-equipping ministry, or towards the other end, you have a family-integrated ministry. And so if you start on the left and you start with the family-based uh, ministry, the family-based ministry, just to sum it up, and this is going to be a generalization, so I know not everybody in this movement with, would would probably agree with each other on everything, but what you typically try to see is, one, they don't see the problem necessarily in age-segregated ministry. So While they see a problem with having complete separation in programs where there's no interaction, they do see a problem in that. They don't necessarily see the problem within age-segregated ministry uh, itself. And so what they try to do is, instead of abolishing age-segregated ministry, they keep the age-segregated ministries, and they try to incorporate times, events, um, Sundays to where Um, those ministries somehow partner together and and include parents in the entire church to where they try to equip the parents and the church speaks to both uh, parents and to children on the importance of uh, parents being the primary disciple makers of their home. So we would obviously disagree with this first one because we still think the problem comes from the age segregatedness of this. um, And to me, a a Uh, problem with actually implementing this is there's actually no real uh, strategy of implementing to me implementing this that would have any serious um, effects upon a congregation and that could be a whole nother episode in in just reading people who um, uh, argue for a family-based ministry is they don't necessarily see the problem in the age segregated ministry and we think that is actually the problem is that on Sunday, when you come together for corporate worship, you are separating the people of God and those who are under their parents and separating them, and we believe that is at the heart of creating the problem. So there you have that one on the left. If you move towards the middle, you have a family-equipping ministry. Now, family-equipping ministry, I know, is primarily what they are going to teach here at Southern Seminary, and you're going to see more towards your more— I don't want to say the other churches aren't conservative— But you're going to see maybe towards more a a conservative, maybe somewhat reformed um, church where they see um, they they still don't uh, completely get rid of age segregated ministry. But their goal is to completely revamp age segregated ministry um, to the point that parents are um, vitally involved within Uh, their children's lives within these ministries, and that these ministries intentionally um, uh, train up parents and bring parents and children together, um, not only on Sundays, uh, but also equip the parents throughout the weeks on what they can do to better disciple their children. And so there are some good things within the family equipping model, and some of the teachers that actually teach it here at Southern Seminary, I have a lot of respect for. Because um, if you hear their stories and the way they've raised their kids, they're very good godly men and good examples. And so I want to be very cautious when we're critiquing these um, these three views that while we may not agree um, with some of them, that we still recognize that these men are Christian brothers. Their goal is to uh, not only train up uh, the, the youth and children rightly, but their goal is to actually make parents the primary disciple-makers. So within the family equipping, you have a complete reorientation of uh, the church's paradigm and mind frame of bringing parents together to emphasize not only in the preaching, but in the practical outworking of the church that parents are the primary disciple makers within their families while still keeping some um, resemblance of age-segregated ministry. Now, the one where me and you would both lean to or fall completely on would be family integrated ministry. Now, none of these views are monolithic, meaning none of them are completely in agreement on every single thing. But if you read from at least people who are part of like the the uh, the family integrated movements, whether they're part of an association or they just subscribe to a family integrated view, the family integrated view is is going to see. Um, they're not going to see the need for age segregated ministry. So they're going to get rid of these age segregated ministry programs. Uh, and they're typically going to get rid, if not nearly, if not all, nearly all um, events or kind of age segregated ministries that would take uh, children of certain age groups away from their parents. So on Sunday morning worship, um, there is the one service where. Uh, Families bring in their children. There is uh, no nursery, typically. There is no uh, children's Bible study. There is no um, children's church. Uh, There is no uh, collegiate ministry that meets that morning. Everybody, as the people of God comes together on a Sunday morning, they pray together, they worship together, they hear the Word of God preached together, and then they fellowship together. And so typically that's what you're going to see in a family-integrated church. That doesn't mean every single one looks exactly alike, but what it means is they see those things as very foundational and um, convict and are convicted on those foundational things as far as what uh, church should look like on a Sunday morning. And so, within those three views, I think we've obviously played our uh, we've laid our cards on the table, and it's pretty obvious where we land. We obviously are going to land on a family integrated model of. Um, family ministry. And so that would mean we, uh, at least thinking about it biblically, we would not see the need, um, and actually would, actually looking at all the different statistics and looking at all of these uh, analysis of the current situation, family ministry is, or um, not family ministry, but age-segregated ministry has actually been um, uh, a plight to the church instead of a help. And instead of keeping the youth and retaining the youth, we're actually losing the youth. And the youth that we do keep, we're actually losing doctrinally because we're not actually teaching them. So um, I guess that's like a basic overview. Now you can kind of get into uh, practical application or maybe we can bounce some things off of each other real quick. Uh, I don't know if you had anything necessarily in mind, Um, but I've, I've kind of thought about this a little bit uh, it's very easy to to find your stance on a certain um, the model of family ministry. And while I don't think the other two models um, um, are right, uh, I do see at least the need by them to understand that there's a problem with age segregated ministry. My biggest problem is instead of getting rid of it, they still keep it. And so there almost seems to be me to be this tension of we recognize that Um, completely separating kids from not only the intergenerational contact within the church, but their parents in general as being the primary disciple makers leads to all these problems. It's like we still can't get rid of all of them. And so I think when you think about this practically, most of the arguments I think against a family-integrated type model come with practical objections. And so I think you kind of brought up one sort of... um, when you talked about, you know, how do family integrated churches reach uh, kids who don't have one, don't have families or say they're orphans or something, or they don't have um, anyone in the home who's a believer. They're the only one in the family or two, um, have a family who is completely passive and almost um, lackadaisical in raising up their own children in the faith. You know, what do you do with them? You know, because many people would say, "Well, within a family integrated model, you don't have any way to reach these kids," and so that's typically an objection that comes up. And like I said, most objections typically typically come in the form of um, uh, practical matters or uh, things that uh, deal with how this would work out on a day-to-day, day to day 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 to day basis, not necessarily a scriptural basis. So. Uh, I didn't know if you wanted to try answering any of those or if you had any of your, of your own objections that work out practically or just even practical disagreements or questions.
0: Yeah, no, I, I mean, that is a good question. Um, and, and like I said before, um, to answer that question, you actually have to ask a couple other questions. Um, uh, now if, if for instance, a kid wanders into your church, who's, family is not believers, that's a different situation than a kid whose family does go to the church and just isn't doing their job in discipling their children. Mm-hmm. That's a different scenario. And not only that, but both of those situations are exceptions. Those, those are generally not the rule in a biblical uh, reformed church. I mean, for the most part, you're going to have parents that are discipling and raising up their children. So what we don't do is we do not create something uh, to uh, to address the the exception. We we create a ministry for the rule, and then we deal with the exceptions. So uh, especially with something like that. So for instance, if you have a kid who comes in, um, or or a family who comes in. And they're not discipling their children. They're not raising up their children. Uh, the first thing that needs to happen is the elders need to address the family. The elders need to address the parents. And go through with them biblically what their job is to be. What they're supposed to be doing as parents. Um, and hopefully that will fix it. Uh, but if it doesn't, and you know we go all the way down the line of the parents are, are uh, called out in their sin... And it goes all the way down the line to excommunication of the church because they're living in unrepentant sin. And yet the kid still wants to come. What happens then, I think, is that the people of the church have the obligation to, in a sense, adopt that child into their family and treat them as such, mm-hmm. to not where we create a ministry for that kid who's lost, but we have families who bring that kid in and attempt to disciple them. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, th- like, you know, um, my wife and I uh, finished Job a while back. And this is what a lot of other people have said too, is that, you know, Job says, cries out and, and basically says that, uh, you know, curse me if I do not have the orphans and the widows in my home. And so we should have the mentality of if there are people in the church who do not have a biblically minded family, who are not going to raise them up, we should be willing to teach them mm-hmm. if the family isn't doing that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but the first thing is try and organize the family in a way to do that, because that's what God has ordained. God has created that institution. Um and and that institution is what God has ordained to raise and govern and grow children and teach them and all of those things. So um, I mean that that is kind of the way I would answer it. Yeah. Uh, again, it it's going to be a case by case thing, depending on the family, depending on the child, depending on a lot of different circumstances. Yeah. We don't just you know uh, we don't just give it a a, a one size fits all answer because it's not a one
1: size fits all. Mhm. So, oh, well, I, I mean I think that's a great answer. That's exactly where I think I would I would try to go to and like you said, it's it it's funny for that charge to be brought up against a family integrated church, but then it could be turned around. And it's like, well, there you go again trying to make a cookie cutter way that you can just fit everybody into something. And like you said, it's always going to depend on if it's a child or a someone who's younger their situation, um, but I and it's and it's funny. So you, in part of that book, you're reading through these statistics, and one thing you come across is uh, what typically happens when certain people of a household are one to Christ. So the the possibility that a family or more than one family member will come to know Christ, if like say. Uh, the young a younger child does so like a younger sibling whether it's like a brother or sister or um, a, a son or a daughter comes to know Christ the chances of that family actually coming to know Christ and for that to happen is very low and then also being able to go out and get these youth is actually a very low percentage as well and so what what's typically funny is that's brought up against the church but the thing is it's it's like you said, it's, it's not like family-integrated means a child just walked in with no parents, kick them out. <laughs> <Yeah>. Be gone, <laughs> Satan! Like th- No. I mean, that, that is completely antithetical to the heart and soul of a family-integrated church, which is to, to make sure that we go out to all the nations and preach the gospel. So, like you said, we would invite them to come and to, to worship, and to learn, and to be taught, and to be discipled, and hopefully to be brought to faith if they're not of faith, but that is done within the context of the body, and not a specialized um, youth group or something on a Sunday that would um, isolate them, and it would actually seek for their better, because now they would be around parents whom they would see discipling their own children, who uh, would love and care for them, in that way, even though they are not even blood-related. And there you actually see the the bonds of just being physically related to someone break down within the body, and it's a beautiful thing to see because now you're seeing people from all different backgrounds, even nationalities and ethnicities, coming together as the family of God and that there is no more distinction in that way. But like you said, what are the best chances of actually reaching the youth going out to the youth, getting them to come into your church and then trying to keep them? No, you go to the parents. And then when you actually see the statistics for that, the chances of the family turning in faith increase significantly if the father of the household is won. Why? Right. Because he's the primary leader that God has instituted since day one. So if you win the father, if you win the parents, the chances of that household coming to faith uh, increased dramatically, and that doesn't mean we believe in, uh, you know, just like a bunch of chances and statistics and people going, "All right, yep, yeah, I am going to choose that now." Obviously, God uses means, but we think those means are typically through the way He's created and ordained things to be, and that is the family unit winning over the father, the one who's supposed to be the leader and the provider of the household. And so, I think, I think that's a, that's a great that's a great answer. You want to reach the youth? Well, you need to reach the fathers and the mothers and the ones who have abandoned their families and and the ones who have completely um, abstained from their responsibility as fathers and, and mothers. Yeah,
0: I think what's funny about that accusation is that accusation is actually never meant as an argument. Generally, they're saying that to try and get you to uh, logically have to agree with age segregated ministry or feel bad for the children, but but that argument doesn't actually work because in most churches that do have age-segregated ministry, their focus is not just, oh, this is only for the kids who don't have families or this is only for the kids whose families aren't doing what they're supposed to do. I mean, I, I went to a, a church like that and if I didn't go to college group or if I didn't go to high school group or whatever, it, I mean, it was like, what are you doing? Why aren't, why aren't you with the people you're supposed to be with? You know, or I see all the time parents who, uh, you know, they, they bring their kids and they don't want their kids to go to high school or they don't want their kids to go to the college group or whatever because they want them in the body. And then the church is like, well, why aren't you bringing your kid with the high school kids? Why isn't your kid going with the college group? And they want it as a ministry for all kids. They, Mm -hmm. they don't actually just want to reach the kid who doesn't have a family. It's it's actually more than that to them, because if it was, then these these high school ministers and these college ministers would be trying their hardest to get themselves out of a job. If their focus was, we don't want to have this ministry, we want the parents to be doing this, then they should be doing everything in their power so that they no longer have that job anymore. They should be working to have the parents train the children. They should be doing all of these things so that eventually they're no longer needed as a college minister or a high school pastor or whatever. And that's just, that's simply just not the way it is.
1: Yeah. And I mean, there's a million other things I think we can do, and maybe we can uh, talk about this on another episode when uh, if we get any questions, which would be great. We would love to hear back from you guys on this topic. But I think to kind of wrap this up in the nick, I can get your last thoughts on um, what I'm going to say now is in most objections you bring, and that's a big one right there. Most objections that you bring up as far as a family integrated model, not being able to cater to a certain age group or to a, a certain demographic or something usually is absolutely baseless. Why? because just like we described in the example you gave, is a family-integrated church can minister to the same age group, can, can uh, minister to any demographic that any other type of family ministry church does without having to have the age-segregated ministry attached to it. So to me, that, com- that completely gets rid of it, is there's not one thing that a family integrated church can't one can't do and probably two doesn't do that a whether it's a programmatic church or a, or a church that's semi um programmatic can't do but they can do it without the age segregation and i which obviously is going to lead to a healthier church um in our opinion so i don't know if you have any any closing thoughts but this would be great for um any of the listeners to follow up on is you know, send in your criticisms of us too. If you want to, if you want to go back and forth on this, we could spend, you know, probably another 30, 40 minutes going through different objections and laying out just some of the basics of a family integrated um, church, not necessarily that we have all the answers for everything.
0: I agree. I, I don't only think that they can do those things, but I think they can do them better. So,
1: yeah. So, um, yeah, that was, that's a good one. That was, that's, a, that's definitely an important topic, and uh, we recognize that it's not a you know, uh, a doctrine that you're going to live and die on as far as salvation, but it's important, I think, to um, the, the, the body um, in your local church and the body at large of making sure that not only are youth being discipled, but they're being discipled well. Uh, And that youth aren't just in a church, but they're being discipled by the scriptures in church. Um, And we're not raising up another generation that adheres to a uh, false gospel and a false hope and a God who is simply out for their happiness and not for um, their eternal life. And so hopefully we can emphasize at least that today. So if uh, you—this will lead into a nice segue— if you guys have any questions, concerns, or criticisms, you can email <laughs> us at refiningandreforming@gmail.com. At that is refiningandreforming@gmail.com. Send us your questions, concerns, and criticisms on this episode or any past episodes. And then head on over to our website, www.refiningandreforming.com. You guys can find our Facebook and Twitter links there. And then click on that iTunes icon go to iTunes, download past episodes, subscribe to the podcast, write and leave us a review. Give us five stars, even before you listen, just as a high five to us. We will thank you later with a, um, uh, well, we have nothing we uh, we we don't have that much money. So we'll just thank you on the podcast. How about that? But go on, <laughs> give us five stars and we'll thank you in our hearts and we'll mean it. So, um, yeah, until next time guys, uh, we just want to say thanks for listening. Thanks for being patient with us. And we'll just see when the next episode comes out. So, until then, grace and peace to all the brothers out there. And as always, guys, so be there.